0: Chapter 6, Romans, and verse number 12, reading through verse 14. Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. I ran across a couple of articles this last week that caught my attention. They were written a long, long time ago, but they... um, did help me understand the text that we were talking about this morning, and especially one of the key words. This particular article was saying is about uh, Martin Luther and Zwingli. These uh, guys were uh, working in the Reformation in Europe, if you know anything about your church history. And what happened, little known and not too much of history writes about it, but there was a time when Luther and Zwingli had a fallen out. And in the falling out, uh, the whole Reformation. Process was getting a little shaky because these men were at odds with each other. They were uh, a little upset with each other. And and the fact of the matter is, all the details of that have, I don't think, ever been known fully. But what happened was, this article was written about what happened during that time. So it says, during that Great Reformation in Europe, while Luther and Swingley were having somewhat an odd, were at odds in their concern for the program, the movement as they called it, Early one morning Zwingli walked out in the mountains of Switzerland And a soul-stirring sight confronted him and probably changed him forever He saw two goats that were making their way over a narrow path on the mountain One was ascending up a trail The other was descending He also noticed that they must pass at a point on the trail that was so narrow There would not be enough room for both to pass So he watched to see what they would do The animals rounded the turn in the path which brought them full view of each other. When the two goats saw each other, they stopped, they backed up several steps, swingly assumed they would butt heads. But an amazing thing happened. The goat that was on the trail below simply laid down in a path, while the goat that was above walked on the back of the down goat and passed on simply the first animal that had bowed down and lying flat on the ground on the trail simply arose and continued its journey as if nothing had ever happened Swingley said to himself this means that the way up is first the way down he went back and dealt with Luther in a different way Maybe the Reformation was saved because of a couple of goats on a hillside. I don't know. But I do know it makes the point of our text. There was another article. This one I read from a history book. It was concerning J. Wilbur Chapman. He went to London. He wanted to see General Booth, the man who was in charge and headed the Salvation Army for so many years. He called and received an opportunity to go in and speak with the man who at that time was well into his 80s. Dr. Chapman listened very closely and reverently to General Booth as he talked about a lot of subjects about his life over the years. And then the American evangelist, Brother Chapman, simply asked the general if he would disclose what he considered to be the secret of his spiritual successes. The general, for a moment, hesitated, he said. And then he said, I saw some tears begin to form in his eyes and begin to steal down his cheeks. And then the general said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there is of me. There have been men with greater brains than I have. There have been men with greater opportunity than I've been given. But from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth. And he said, if there is anything of the power in the Salvation Army program to this day, it is because God has all the adoration of my heart. He has all the power of my will. And he has all the influence of my life. He goes on, Chapman, the evangelist, said he went away from that meeting with General William Booth with the knowledge that the greatness of a man's power is actually the measure of a man's surrender. Is surrender. And I concur with that because the text of Scripture that we're in, Romans chapter 6 concurs with that. I say to you that you note the text before us and there's a word that keeps coming up and we find it again here. It's the word yield. We read it in verse number 13 where he says, Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of 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 righteousness unto God. You need to keep before you in Romans chapter 6 that there are three words. We've called your attention to them over and over and over again because they're so very important. The first of those words is the word no. It's in verse number 3, it's in verse number 6, and it's in verse number 9, or at least the equivalent of it is. And that is to say that this passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 6 is dealing with your, your growing in grace, your sanctification process. That is, you're becoming more holy in your life. And those words, or these three words that Paul the Apostle inserts here, the first one being no, it means it establishes something, that there's something you have to know for this to happen. It's not that God just sort of zaps you from heaven and makes you all perfect or makes you holy. As something that happens here, and it begins with no. The second word is the word reckon. It's found in verse number 11. Likewise, reckon, it's the word for count. It's the same word uh, that's uh, used in accounting, keeping a log. In fact, the word comes from that. It is the ideal of you counting it as such, considering it to be so. And then the third word is the word we look at today. It's the word yield. It's found in verse 13. You'll see it again later in verse 16. You'll see it even later still in verse number 19. To make it practical, however, you need to understand that the word know has to do with the mind. You have to also understand that the word reckon has to do with your heart. And then you need to understand that yield has to do with your will. So what we're dealing with today is a matter of the will, and that's what chapter 6 really is dealing with in this subject. You see, to yield in a definition that would be drawn from many passages of Scripture would mean to give way to. It would mean to put at one's disposal. It would mean to present oneself, to offer as a sacrifice, to surrender. That's why Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 has this idea in it. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In the Old Testament sacrifices, they obviously were dead. Christ does not want dead sacrifices now. God doesn't want you to go out and kill yourself and say, I'm offering myself as a sacrifice to God. What God does want is a willful choice on your part to yield yourself to God and simply make yourself available to Him for Him to work through you to accomplish His purposes. And that's what this is about. It is true that there are some believers who have been asked to die for the cause of Christ. But I can give you the good news, that's typically not true. God doesn't ask you to die for Him typically, but He asks every believer to live for Him. And that's where we come to verse number twelve. Today's text, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. The basis or the reason for Paul telling us this is found way back up in verse number six, where he said, Knowing this that our old man is crucified with Christ or with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we, or that henceforth we should not serve sin. That's really what we call the basis or the foundation or what makes it possible for you to obey verse number uh, number 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. How can I not have that happen? Well, you can allow that not to happen if you'll accept what God has said happened in Christ. If you believe what the Scriptures say, and that is this, that you were crucified with Christ. Your old man, your old self, was crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ, and the idea was that you should no longer serve sin. What the Scriptures are saying to you is you have now a choice. There was a time in your life where you really didn't have a choice. If you were back there with Adam or when you were in your sin as an unbeliever, you really didn't have a choice. You were a slave of sin. You couldn't do anything but sin. Everything you did see were sin. Scriptures even says that even the outbreathing breathing of a, of a lost person is sin. Everything about a person without Christ is sinful But he says, the time came when Christ died on the cross. You believed on the Christ of the cross. You believed his finished work. And in so doing, he gave you not only salvation, paid your sin debt, but what else he did for you was he made it possible for you to say no to sin, which you can now do. Some folks don't. Most won't. But all could who know Christ. It's important. You see, sin is a ruling monarch or a ruling king, and your life and mine has been dethroned. We're no longer a captive of sin. We're no longer a slave to sin. In fact, we are free in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's important to know too, you see, is what is true positionally, what Paul is saying is positionally true, needs to now be made practically true. As surely as Christ died and did all that... That's not going to be anything but a jar on a shelf unless you make it reality in your life. Unless you go out of the New Life Baptist Church this morning as a believer and you say to yourself, based on what Christ did and what God's word says, I'm free from sin. I don't have to sin. I can say no to every sin that comes my way. What's important too is, and Paul is saying this here, he's saying, do not allow the king of sin or king sin back on the throne of your life. Christ put him out, so don't you put him back. And every time you sin, that's exactly what you do. You come back and say, I know Christ died for me on the cross, and I know he stripped Satan of his power, and he took sin off the throne of my life. I know that, but I'm going to sin. i want to put him back on the throne. And that's what you do. Every single time a believer sins, that's what he does. By the way, sin is never eradicated. It is never totally obviated from your life or mine as long as you're in the flesh. But what the good news is, it no longer has the power over you to control you as a master would a slave. That's what Christ did on the cross. Christ took away sin's power as a monarch over your life. You can say no to sin. Most Christians don't believe that because they're so prone to sin. They say, "I I don't understand that. There's some folks here in the New Life Baptist Churches. I've taught on this for these last several weeks. It has been amazing some of the blank looks I've gotten from some of you. It? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Is this a joke? It's going bad? No, this is the truth. It's the truth because the Bible says it's true. It's good because it says that God's people don't have to do what the world out there does all the time by habit and nature. We now have a choice. When it the Bible says you've been made free in Christ and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free admit it admit it it wasn't wasn't just a figment of somebody's imagination it was the truth but that's the truth that sets people free that's why in our present society and we see so much of hear so much about sin we read about it in a newspaper we see it in the newscast we, we see it everywhere we hear about it all the time God's people have a tendency to believe that you can't have a choice You're fixed, man. You're going to sin. You're programmed. You're computerized to sin. It's not true. That's a lie from the devil himself. And all he's doing is trying to take away from the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you ever forget this. As surely as you're saved by the grace of God and the penalty for your sin has been paid, the power to say no to sin was paid for at the same time by the same Savior. And He paid that sin debt, and He paid that privilege for you, that provision for you, so you could look sin square in the face and say, I don't have to do this. I have a voice in this. And I can say, I am not going to sin. I want you to note here, if you would, in verse number 12, where He says, Ye should obey. The the, fact, the matter is... The way you give in to sin and the way you put sin back on the throne is really related in verse twelve. Only it's what we call backward related, meaning what Paul is saying here: "Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey." <clears throat> excuse me, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. That's the backdoor approach, meaning that Paul is saying, in the case and context here, sin gets back on the door or on the throne if you don't do this. If you don't obey, verse number 12, where he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. If you let sin reign in your mortal body, then what you're doing is, Paul saying you're doing the reverse. You're putting sin back on the throne of your life, and you're saying to sin, I will sin, I want to sin, it's my choice to sin. That's what you're saying. And Paul says here, you don't have to. And the admonition under inspiration is, let not sin do that. Don't let that happen to you. I call your attention to the phrase, your mortal body, in verse number 12. It's an important one because when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, the soul and spirit are actually, are I guess you'd call it, beyond the reach or out of reach of sin. Your soul and spirit are not reached by sin. They're, it doesn't mean that sin and Satan doesn't attack them, for it certainly does. Peter wrote this, First Peter chapter 2, he said, "...but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him." Who hath called you out of darkness into marvelous light, which in time past were not a people? That's when you were lost, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So the soul and spirit are out of out of out of reach of sin. Sin and, sin can't do anything to them as it can to your body. But it is a fact that it does not mean that they cease or stop trying. But what this passage says in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 12 is very simple. The only port, the only port to which sin can pull into and try to regain kingship over is your mortal body. Can't do it with your spirit. He can't do it with your soul. But he certainly can with your body. And what's important about that is to understand that the scriptures are very clear when we get over to Romans chapter 8, which is to be about a couple of millenniums from now. But in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 22, it makes it clear that the body is the last to experience redemption in totality. Romans chapter eight, verse twenty two says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of the body. So the body is going to be the last of the soul spirit body to be, as it were, completely redeemed and out of touch with sin. But the fact of the matter is, while you're in this body, in this life, sin is going to keep pestering and keep after you to let sin back on the throne of your life. And what Paul is saying in verse number 12, don't let sin get back on the throne of your life. And then he even tells you how and wherefore. Look at the latter part of verse 12. That ye should obey it. In the lust therein. That's exactly how you put sin back on the throne. When you obey the lust that sin activates through your body. And it can be any and all. It can be anything. I mean, it can be, uh, you, you name the sin. If, it, if this body has a craving for it, and that craving is outside the boundaries of what's right, and you succumb to that craving, then you put sin back on the throne. It can be anything, it can be everything, it can be all the things that this body craves that are out of bounds for it at any given point in place. So this passage of Scripture, that's what Paul is saying to us. Don't let sin get back on the throne, especially understanding that Christ has put him out. And the way you're going to put him back on is if you obey the lust that sin incurs in your body. Notice something else. Uh, One day, by the way, out there in the future somewhere, God alone knows when, these bodies and those of every believer will be glorified. Then and only then will our body be out of reach of sin. So until then, God gives us this command. Look at verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments unto God, of righteousness unto God. You need to note that the two, three words, phrases there that are important to understand any any given text is true here. For instance, the first phrase, your members. Understand what he's talking about, body parts. Your body parts. Your body parts. Neither yield your body parts. "...as instruments of unrighteousness." Then notice the phrase instruments. By the way, what captures my attention always as I read the Scriptures is words and finding out about those words. I think etymology is one of the great studies that every preacher ought to get into. But the fact is, this is the only time, actually the only time in the New Testament where the word instruments is used. One time, and Paul uses it. Instruments. Seemed like a strange word to me. Verse number 13, "...neither yield your members as instruments." instrument. Didn't make a lot of sense first time I read it, just in its context, and it makes a lot more sense when you understand what it almost always is translated elsewhere. It's almost always translated elsewhere. Weapons. Weapons. You remember when Judas came to our Lord Jesus Christ in the garden and he and, and talked about the Roman soldiers and they were carrying staves and sticks. In fact, the back of the passage says in John eighteen three, Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Word is the same Greek word here as instruments, weapons. Paul did the same thing in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Word weapons, same Greek word as instruments. What this verse of scripture can be said, and honestly be said, and in a right and proper interpretation, the word, the Greek word hoplon here, is to say that these weapons, and Paul is saying it, I believe, do not take your weapons of warfare that God has given you to fight a good fight of faith, and then give them or use them for the very enemies of God against what Christ did for you. That's what he's saying. Don't let your body, in the instruments, the weapons, the the, the members of it. Be used as weapons against God. Don't let them do that. And yet, if you put sin back on the throne, that's exactly what you're doing. You're aiding and abetting the enemy. The very thing that Christ died on the cross to take care of, you are elevating. You're putting sin back on the throne of your heart and saying it's okay. It's no big deal. It's not that bad a word. You know, work. All everybody does it. It's a common thing in our society. No big deal. It is a big deal. And God said to do that's traitorish. To do that is absolutely aiding and abetting the enemy. The very thing that Christ died for, you're elevating, you're sticking up in the throne of your heart and your life and saying, it's okay. Give me a break here. Get a brain. Understand, this ain't right. And the Bible is saying very clearly, this is absolutely not God's will for you. And he makes it crystal clear, neither yield or surrender or give over to the parts of your body as weapons of unrighteousness. Don't let the devil use you against God. And yet that's what we do. And we do it so easily. By the way, tied up in the tenses of the verbs here are, is an important thing too. And it's important to note it, you know, and especially emphasize it in our our society where it's live as I did kind of thing and still be a Christian. You know, you, you get saved, but you can go back and get drunk and shoot dope and do everything else you want to. But just be a Christian in that. You know, just be, just, you know hogwash. Can't do that. This passage of Scripture makes that very clear. You see Paul's reference in the very beginning where it says neither yield and what he's saying is now you translate that from the word that's here in the Greek it says do not keep on continually presenting or yielding your body parts as weapons to help unrighteousness. That's not it. Is. That means simply once you got saved when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ you need to cut loose all the sinful practices that you committed ...as the old person you were. That's what it's saying. And that's important because... ...you see, if you drank booze, you need to stop. If you were in an extramarital affair... ...and you got saved, you need to stop. You're practicing homosexual... ...you need to give up the lifestyle. You were one of those people... ...who are addicted to pornography... ...you need to abandon it. You're one of those folks... ...who have bookmarks... ...the favorite websites... And it feeds the old sins of the old flesh. You do need to go home today and erase every single one of those bookmarks. That's what it's saying. That's what it's saying. It's saying you need to cut loose all those things because they don't belong. Those old lifestyle sins don't belong in this lifestyle. And you need to put them back over there where they were and you need to leave them there. And I say to you that Paul the Apostle is not by himself in emphasizing that. To continue in these sins and all the others that we do not name here is to put sin back on the throne of your life and to give aid and weapons to the enemy of God. That's outright traitorism. And it makes Judas look like a Sunday school scholar. You see, you think he's a crook. You think he was a traitor. Uh, What we do is much worse because we know so much more. Judas was limited in what he understood about what was going on, and he traded a cause for sure, and he traitored our Lord Jesus Christ. You know a lot more than that, and my friend, for you to put sin back on the throne makes you a bigger traitor than he. And we all know that uh, nobody has any respect or love or appreciation for Judas the traitor. Something else to be noted, and somebody asked this question before I do, and I took it from a context of something I heard years ago. The question is very simple. What use will you make of your body? What use will you make of your body? This guy said there's two choices. It can be a temple or it can be a toy. Toys serve only childish lusts or desires or pleasures. And that for only a short while until they grow weary of them. And they're simply discarded. What an empty life that kind of mentality is. Or it can be a temple. On the other hand, a presence or place for the presence of God. A place. A place. Of communion with him. I'd remind you, First Corinthians chapter number six, verses 19, 20 already delegate to us what our bodies are. It really doesn't give us a choice. It doesn't say to you, you want your temple to be a toy, or you want it to be a temple of God. What what do you want your body to be? It doesn't give us that. It says forthrightly, 1 Corinthians 6 19, what know you not? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Which is in you, which you have of God, which you are not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It doesn't give a choice. It doesn't say your body is is up to you. You can use it any way you want to use it. You can do that. It's not your body. It's not yours to abuse. It's not to yours to use. It's God's, and it's for His spirit to indwell and to empower you to live Godlike, and that was His intent from the beginning. Reading this text of Scripture, I realized something that I I think I've known, but I certainly hadn't verbalized. I realized that sin really has three compartments to it. And when these three come together, it's really when things really go haywire. For instance, I think you can say, and I believe the Bible says, and I says it, I think, clearly in Romans 8 and verse number 4, that first of all, sin is spiritual. Listen carefully. Sin is spiritual. In Romans chapter 8 and verse number 4, it says that the unrighteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The implied truth is that, that sin, first of all, is walking in the flesh, doing what the flesh wants done. So first of all, it's an understanding of a spiritual principle to do what this body wants done contrary to what God's will says is sin for you. So it's first of all of knowledge It's a spiritual understanding The second thing is it's mental In Philippians chapter 4 Listen to this In Philippians 4.8 It's Romans 8.4 But in Philippians 4.8 eight says finally brethren Whatsoever things are true Whatsoever things are honest Whatsoever things are just Whatsoever things are pure Whatsoever things are lovely Whatsoever things are of good report If there be any virtue If there be any praise Think on these things The contrary is also true. If, in fact, it's sinful and you think on it, the evidence of this verse of Scripture is saying, if you will think on these good things, these good things will be more easily practiced in your life. Conversely, it's also true. You think on the wrong things, it'll eventually get its wealth down to, as a a third part of this whole scenario, it will become a physical thing with you sin always begins first in the heart, that's spiritual secondly in the mind that's the mental and thirdly right back to our text here in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 13, it becomes physical neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin it starts out spiritual, that's in the heart it'll eventually get to the mind and you'll think about it and collaborate it and then thirdly it'll become a reality in your life, you'll do it nobody ever sinned who did not think about it Nobody ever sinned that did not think about it. You don't just go out and, and sin and say, oh, I didn't, I, I, I sinned. You know, it doesn't happen that way. It is a moral choice. That's what makes it so wicked. That's what makes it so bad. It is a moral choice I make to do what I want to do. It's spiritual, mental, and physical. And the concern Paul has here in chapter number 6, he's dealing with the physical end of it. And he's saying, don't let it get that far. Don't let it go there. You don't have to have a Bible degree in Bible or a degree in Bible to, to notice and read the Scriptures to comprehend several simple truths. One is this. It, understand that Moses used a, a, a rod, as it were, God using it in Moses' hand, to conquer Egypt in a roundabout way. It also, it's interesting, as you can note, that the Scriptures show us that, that God used a sling in David's hand to kill a giant and to put the Philistines to flight. But God also used the surrendered, yielded tongues of the prophets of the Old Testament to warn God's people against the judgment and also to explain to them how God would deliver them. Interesting. These are body parts, each in those cases, the hands, the tongue, the mouth. But you can also notice that in the sin that David committed with Bathsheba, the sin in David's heart encouraged him to put sin back on the throne of his life. And interestingly enough, David's eyes saw Bathsheba bathing. After that, David's brain planned a scheme. And after that, David's hand signed a document, a military document that would be dead sure to get rid of Josiah or or the husband. The fact of the matter is, As a result of David yielding his members as instruments of unrighteousness, he eventually had to confess this. And you'll need to look at it to get it in your heart. It's in that passage in Psalm 51. Notice what he says. Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness." Psalm 51, verse 1 says, According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Now watch carefully verse 2 in the following words. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. Then notice, as you would, in verse number 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions, but my sin is ever before me. I think that would be calculated as eyesight or spiritual sight. He sees it. It's ever before him. It's right there. In verse number 6, notice he says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. Thou shalt make me to know wisdom. The ideal of wisdom is the mind, the brain, that which is the thinking part of a person. And then in verse number 8, he says, Make me to hear the joy and gladness. That has to do with ears. Maybe the spiritual ears, but ears nonetheless. And then verse number 10, he says, And create in me a clean heart. His heart is affected. And then in verse number 14, In verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. And then verse 15, O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth, and thou shalt show forth thy praises. What he got to and got at in verse number 2 covers it pretty good. He says, wash me thoroughly, thoroughly from my iniquities. You know why he uses that? Because sin affects every part of your members. It takes care of the whole person, the whole being that you are. And that's why Paul, back over here in Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't yield to sin any part of who you are. If you do, sin will thoroughly saturate those parts and cause them, as it were, to put sin back on the throne again. Notice, if you would, and we'll... Grind to an end. Verse number 13 again. Note carefully the first part of the verse is negative. It says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Then it turns positive but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto God. He doesn't mean this passively either. He means for you to present yourselves gladly, deliberately, yield your members to God. And I think personally the text in the tense of the verse would tell you that it needs to be a time and an occasion of it. Somewhere in your life you need to stop and say, I commit my life, my whole person, to the Lord Jesus Christ for His purposes and His good and His glory. Notice as we close verse 14. In verse 14, then he comes back with this. He says, For, or as in our line of thinking is based on everything I've said, here's a good basis for it. A basis of me telling you all these other things is that sin shall not have dominion over you for, a second for, a second reason, for for ye are not under law but under grace. First thing I would say to you, the first part of verse number 14 tells you there's been a change of masters. You see, for sin shall not have the dominion over you. That means that sin is no longer on the throne of your life. So there's been a change of masters. The second one tells you there's been a change of condition. You see, it says, for ye are not under law, but under grace. In God's original plan of creation as the young people in VBS studied this last week Genesis chapter 1 verse number 26 it's very clear that man was to have dominion over everything on the earth God put him in charge but then when Satan showed up on the scene in the garden of Eden Adam yielded to his sin and the temptation the invitation the seduction that Satan put forth and so thereafter all of Adam's offspring became slaves to sin interesting in John chapter 8 Verse number 34, our Lord speaking, he said, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. Committeth in the text is he who continuously, continually submits himself in slavery. That person is a slave of sin. And I say to you, the danger of that is, is to make sure that you've been saved by the grace of God and you are not a slave of sin. Are there things in your life you just cannot seem to fight and fuss with and win over? I'm not trying to be facetious, nor am I trying to get you to doubt your salvation, but I am trying to get you to see a major truth of the Scriptures. You first need to be absolutely sure you've been saved by the grace of God and are trusting the finished work of Jesus Christ. It'd be a shame for Him to pay for something and you not have it. And that's what it's going to be for a lot of people in this world. But there's also that second aspect where he paid for you to have the power and the provision to say no to sin and you live all your lifetime in bondage to some sin you can't win over. I mean, there are folks in this room, by their own statements to me privately and statements of counseling, have said, Pastor, I've fought this thing for long, I've wrestled with this thing, I just, you know. And let me tell you, and we do many times. But the first thing I say to them is the first thing I'd say to you is, one, make sure you've been set free in the first place. Make sure your sin has been paid for in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have placed faith in that finished work. But that second thing is just as important. Just as much faith as it takes to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Just the same kind of faith it takes Him at His word that He paid for a provision for you that you need to activate or reckon. And that is, you need to count yourself indeed dead to sin, sin off the throne, and I do not have to uh, okay or say yes to the sin that knocks at my door. Our ideal in this society is every time sin knocks, we open it gladly. And then it's only after sin enters the door and we get inside and we contaminate and pollute ourselves with it, we say, "Oh boy, we shouldn't done that." You see, it advertises itself as, "Oh, it's no big deal," and that's the way society will do it. And that's exactly the way the devil sells it until you get in it. And then when you get in it, he says, and you tell me you're going to go back next Sunday and preach? You tell me you're going to go this week and teach Sunday school? You tell me you're going to have your devotions and you're going to think yourself spiritual? Who in the world do you think you are doing what you just did, acting in the way you just acted, doing the sinful thing you just did, and now you're going to... You see, the devil is a, a master at duping us. And our Lord said, I don't want you to be duped. I want you to understand a simple principle. Romans eight thirty four. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin, continually so, is a servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, if the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. It is a shame and a disgrace to our faith. There are people in this room who have been set free by the marvelous grace of God and yet are not living that way. We're slaves to sin. And I say to you that our society makes it to be easier to be so. The reason sin shall not have dominion over you is seen in that part of the text. But the latter part explains the reason more fully. For ye are not under law, but under grace. Now, let me show you something that I think is important here. Some people would have the idea, and some do in our society. You take away the law. If you tell people they don't have to keep the law, Pastor, they're going to get under sin more fully. They're going to get more under the dominion of sin. This verse of Scripture would beg to differ. And I remind you, this is God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. It says, no, the opposite is true. Let me explain how that's so. Paul wrote it earlier in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. Listen carefully. He said, the strength of sin is the law. What he was saying about that was, is very simple. Sin has the mastery over a person who is under law because the law tells a person what he needs to do but doesn't provide him with any of the help to do it. So a man is constantly under that bombardment of responsibility but no ability. And he tries and he keeps trying, and he becomes a miserable sort because he cannot meet up and he can't match up. When Christ died on the cross for man's sin, what Christ did is a wonderful, amazing thing. Remember, God sending his son into this world was by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. God sending his son to this world was a gift of God's grace. Let me tell you something. The sin bondage in your life is not broken by you keeping a set of laws. It is broken by your dependence on the grace of God that's been accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ of the cross. That drives people crazy trying to keep up to something that there is no power provided in. But in the grace of God there is power and strength provided. And that's what this passage of Scripture is doing. It is the grace of God that breaks the power of sin in the believer's life. They are no longer under the authority and dominion of sin in the law, but they're under the authority and dominion of grace. Here's what Paul is saying in essence with that one little phrase. He's saying continued success and victory over sin in the Christian's life does not depend on you keeping a set of laws, but depends on God's grace that's been provided in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What happens is, does that mean we throw out our Bibles? Absolutely not. It means there is instruction in this that if you and I embrace and understand, it will encourage us in the grace of God. Every great truth concerning your sin is somewhere wrapped with a ribbon of grace. Everywhere somewhere there's a ribbon of grace around the truth that deals with your sin and mine. You know why he does that? The reason is very simple, because he never wants you to think that your salvation in part or parcel has anything to do with you keeping something or holding on to something or being able to obey something to the point that God looks at you and says, Hey, you've obeyed enough, come on into heaven. No, he wraps every one of those truths in a ribbon of grace. So you see the ribbon, you say, Oh, this is from God, and it means it's his grace, not my works. I remind you it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. And that's exactly the same way He continues to keep us pure, clean, and holy for service in His cause. I leave you with this this morning. One, be sure. Be absolutely sure that if you died in a pew before you leave this building today, that you know Christ as Savior and you're resting, trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Two, Please embrace and take by childlike faith. When Christ died on the cross to pay your sin debt, He paid for your provision. He gave you, as it were, a credit card that you get to use the rest of your life against sin. All you have to do, He says, in essence, when He issued the card was, when you place faith in Christ, you can simply, when sin shows up, you can show Him the red card and say, this represents the blood of Jesus Christ that's been shed for my sin And it is a provision for me that I don't have to accept you or obey you or succumb to you. And right here, right now, I believe the finished work of Christ to be sufficient and turn away. You see, it's hard for a person to sin looking at the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work and that's exactly the point in the passage that Paul has left us with in verse number 14 in this chapter divided easily into two sections verses 1 through 14 answered the first question that was posed in verse number 1 and verse number 15 next week will pose a new question and we start again the reasoning is close but the problem the argument is not identical and so we'll keep on preaching we won't stop here obviously but the point is this it's important for these truths not just to be preached it's important for them to be embraced so this morning, I'm going to challenge you to take the truth that we've talked about here this morning, and in fact, over the last several weeks, and for you to appropriate it. When sin shows up, whether it be by a television magazine or by people, you simply say, I do not have to sin. There has been provided for me nothing in myself, not by works of my abstinence, not my power of choice. You know? When somebody will tell a Christian, and I've heard it often, they'll say, uh, Christians don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. Then they'll quote a passage of scripture that does not relate this truth. They'll quote a verse of scripture that gives, in essence, power to us. You know, saying, you've got the power in you. and You can say, let me tell you, it's not the big deal about you. It's the big deal about him and what he did to provide for you what you need to say no to sin. That's the big deal. And that's why we're not tooting anybody's horn except the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I hope you know him. I hope you're resting on him. And I hope you'll take what he's provided and use it, not only for your good, but for his glory and a testimony before a sinful world. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the holy scriptures and thank you for the wonderful truth that Paul has revealed under inspiration in this great chapter thus far. I pray this morning that we would get a handle on this and that this would be something that we, the New Life Baptist Church family, would embrace and believe by faith. And our lives would reflect the difference that Jesus Christ can make when we not only trust Him as Savior, but we also believe Him for the provision He's made for us to say no to sin. We're a free people. Please, Father, remind us of that often. We do not need to yield our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness when Satan and sin knocks at a door. These bodies are not the devil's playground, and they're not sin's hangout. Sin has no business in these bodies, the temple of God. I pray, I ask you, speak to us, convict us of this, and help us to embrace this wonderful truth for your glory and for our good. Father, we pray for the man, woman, boy, or girl in this building this morning who have never believed on Christ as their personal Savior. Our hearts go out to them because as they are, we once were, and we know what it is to be without Christ. And I pray this morning that you'll cause them to understand that Jesus Christ has paid it all. He gave the ultimate sacrifice of his own life to take care of our sin debt. He was the perfect sacrifice, the sinless Son of God. I pray this morning that you'll help them to understand that they have a need whether they realize it or not. It's a spiritual need. It deals with sin. And they this morning need Jesus Christ. Please reveal the need to them. And bring them to yourself. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn in your hymn book if you need one to 282. Just as I am, if God has spoken to your heart about a need for salvation, baptism, church membership, or just to come and pray, maybe God's spoken to you about something altogether different, but God's spoken and you're listening and you want to obey. And let me encourage you to come as we begin the invitation. The first verse, if God has spoken, you simply obey Him. As we sing 282 verse 1 together, please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? And on to verse 2, please. Verse number 2. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Please, our Father in Heaven, I want to thank you so much for your love for us and sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us on the cross. What a wonderful and marvelous gift that's been. In fact, so much more than even we understand, even though we have a revelation of your plan and process, we realize at times our ignorance of this wonderful plan. But we thank you again today for the grace of God that brings salvation. Thank you for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed in our behalf thank you for his sinlessness father thank you today that same grace abounds and can be extended and given to any man woman boy or girl who desires to believe on the lord jesus christ so i pray for any who may be leaving here without christ i pray continue to work in their hearts and draw them to yourself in your time and may they eventually be saved with the great grace of god help them not to waste their lives and succumbing to and bowing to sin as the monarch of their heart help them understand that christ is a much more wonderful master help us to be slaves of christ not sin help us to say no to sin this week help us not to yield our bodies as instruments unto unrighteousness unto death but unto god and righteousness that is alive and it has a spiritual impact of eternal value Father, I pray, take your word and taught in Sunday school and now preached in the worship service and drive it deep into the lives of all of our people and this preacher included. And bless and prepare our hearts even for Brother Ferris' message this evening. Use him in a wonderful way to communicate your word to us. Bless as we go now and give safety to your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.